Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I believe that leadership creates a strategic advantage and is also the key lever for creating the world we want to inhabit. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series, Innovating How You Lead and Transforming Your Organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted that our show guest today is Dr. J.J. Wolcott. J.J., can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, and then I'll talk about the outcome of today's show, which is building a culture of brain health, growth, and effectiveness. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on today. I'm excited to be here. My name is Dr. J.J. Wolcott. I am by training a psychologist although I've done significant work in cognitive development and neurotechnology, and specifically, a lot of the work that I've done is for the military and US government. So what we do oftentimes is take a look at what are the necessary human challenges that our military personnel have to face, and then how do we build the body and the brain to be able to withstand all of those threats, right? So a chaotic environment, an ambiguous environment, we often call it VUCA. So it stands for volatile, uncertain, chaotic, and ambiguous. And then what we do with that is we create all of these interventions that can be very useful to ensure that the brain is working at its optimal state. But what we have been challenged with is how do we bring all of our personnel back to the state side? How do we get them to interact in workforce spaces and in their families and in the greater society? And through all of that work, surprisingly, what starts to fall out is a better understanding of entire holistic human development. And that brings us here, which is, goodness, couldn't we use a lot of this for leaders in other areas? If it's good enough for military, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to think about what are the lessons learned that we can transition and translate for our business leaders. And that's how Maureen and I started to get connected because we've started to turn this into an actual program, right? Like a 12-step program of what's happening in your brain? How do we make sure that it's operating at the optimal state? And then how do we help folks across the business units to be able to be at their most creative, their most productive, and to be frank, to be able to handle the hybrid working experiences we're going to be seeing going forward. I think that's here to stay. Thank you. So we're going to talk about all of what JJ has talked about in our session today. To be competitive in business over the next decade, it'll not only be necessary to optimize our body for physical and mental health purposes. Additionally, it's going to be necessary to ensure that we optimize our brain to create the greatest amount of focus. So the human today is simply not equipped to handle the deluge of data that's coming, nor the constant upskilling requirements that are inevitable. So JJ joins me to share her Accelerate program, and this is a program that can significantly impact individuals and businesses in building a culture of brain health, growth, and effectiveness, and also help them individually build the habits and behaviors necessary to optimize how they're thinking. And I'll say very clearly that when I heard about JJ's program, I signed up immediately because in my work, in innovating how we lead, I have to be clear thinking. As I'm working with clients, if my brain isn't functioning effectively, I'm not very much used to them. So 
optimizing my brain health, especially with a family history of dementia, is absolutely crucial. So for other listeners who are anyone in a leadership role, whether it's business or community or government, is facing these VUCA challenges. And for all of us, doing what I'm doing with JJ is deeply helpful. So JJ, over to you. Let's start with you talking about what is Accelerate, your program. So the Accelerate program is a 12-step program that focuses on the key areas that tend to threaten the brain's ability to function in the chaos that we're now living. So very specifically, there are a few key elements, and I liken this a lot to thinking about being someone who wants to be physically healthy, right? The first thing you're going to do is say, let me learn about the body, right? The basic anatomy. You go to the gym, you sign up, you say, what of these various instruments am I going to use? Am I running on a treadmill? Am I instead using the stairs? When am I doing the deltoids? How many squats should I be doing? And of course, all of this varies per person and by your goal, right? But what we haven't done, we've talked a lot about mental health and wellness. And so people are into yoga or breathing techniques, and all of these are really about those physiological elements. How do we make sure everything in the body is moving the way that it needs to? What we haven't yet started discussing, at least not in the civilian population, is what about the brain? What about the cognitive health and capability? So we start by recognizing how the brain works, right? There is a finite amount of information that any human can take in. This is why we have computers. This is why AI and machine learning are coming down the pike because it essentially multiplies the amount of information that we can take in and analyze. But if our brain becomes overloaded, it does not matter how many courses you sit in. It doesn't matter how many meetings you sit in. It doesn't matter how many additional people talk to you or how many Facebook posts remind you of some point. If your brain is full, you're done. You are not taking in, in any more information. It's been widely studied. What is more interesting, though, is understanding how to deal with that. How do you make sure that the working memory capacity or how much information you can hold in your brain is open enough and has enough room in it to be able to take in everything that's happening in a meeting or everything that is happening in a course or everything that the client is expecting to be heard. Because an interesting little phenomenon happens when you're overloaded. It isn't the case that you typically hold on to the important information and lose the less important information. Rather, it's usually random. So you end up with just random bits of information that come together with someone coming out of a meeting going, I don't really know what just happened. <laughs> and of course, then ultimately it means it doesn't get filed in your long-term memory. It doesn't get, it's not accessible because it's not tagged and understood properly. And then it doesn't get applied usefully in the real world. This is what happens when productivity in a company declines. This is what happens when teamwork breaks down. This is what happens when creativity is threatened. So the first thing we do is really understand how does the brain work? How do the chemicals in the brain work? And what is it that you can do very specifically that increases the right brain chemicals and decreases the ones that are problematic? Then we go into a series of, okay, so now we understand the baseline and what is the target goal. How do we now build up each individual and or team to be able to maximize the use of each of these structures? So how do you make sure that your cognitive load is at a manageable level? Taking into account the stressors of working from home 
or the benefits of working from home. You need to know the difference. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. When do you apply that plan? And then looking at how do the different people in the room, everybody has a different neurological baseline. If you don't know yours, you need to type it. You know, a lot of people will refer to, you know, I'm an ENTJ, uh, which we all know in psychology is not really a good use of descriptor. But when we describe how your neurology works, right, like how your brain actually functions, now we're into an accuracy level that we can actually act upon. And so every person's brain at the base level takes in data one way and then deals with it in another way. Knowing those two factors allows us to be able to recommend how workers be organized at home, at work, in teams, and in different ways. And then as we, we move through that process, what we ultimately get to is to a point where we are looking forward. What is it that we really want to create that optimizes all of those elements? Can you give an example of how people take in information and how they use it so our listeners and so I can relate to that concept and kind of start to situate where am I on, on this scale? Sure. So one of the ways that we assess is to determine how quickly you react to something. Some people are very quick to react to a stimuli in the environment. So if you hear somebody yell, could be a parent, could be a child, could be a boss. And immediately you actually feel it, right? You can feel the neurons in your body kind of get on alert. And then you measure how long it takes for you to recover. So some people are a rapid response, rapid recover. These are the people that flash bang, right? They come in, they're annoyed, they yell, they walk out of the room. It's almost as if it didn't happen. And then you get the other person who's the complete opposite, right? The very slow to respond. They're also the very slow to come back. And so what that person is, it's going to be the, your individual that tends to be more quiet. They're listening. They're taking it in. They're not usually perturbed. But oh, goodness, when they are upset, they are not going to live it down. <laughs> this is the person that's going to hold the grudge for a very, very long time, right? And so you want to be very careful in monitoring when these folks react. Well, that's a warning sign. Something's really happening because it's taken a lot for them to, to get to that point. And then, of course, there's the in-between, those who are quick to react and slow to recover. This is going to be somebody who um, you probably imagine your gossip circles, who's going to be constantly having something going on, and they have a grudge to everybody in the office, or they have a grudge to everybody in the neighborhood. Or there's going to be the best possible scenario. This is the personality. If we had plastic surgery for personalities we'd all want, that's going to be the person that reacts slowly and recovers quickly. I'm rare to get upset, but when I do, as soon as we take care of it, I've forgotten it. Those are the folks that we start to look at need to be more in the leadership space, right? So again, if we started taking those types, those four types of arousal, and started looking at those behaviors in a work setting, we could see who's going to be the listener in the team. That's the individual we want in a lot of meetings where there's going to be a lot of chaos, but they're going to be able to have the ability to, to take it all in and still think logically under stress, right? Because they're not going to react quickly. And we need to be careful about those that are going to flashbang too quickly because we have to take their points with a grain of salt. But on the other hand, in a space where there's a lot of noise or there's a lot of need for creativity and forward thinking, people who react to those situations also tell us a lot about how our product may be taken in or understood in the next meeting or in sales. They're really helpful in those areas of being able to understand what is the signal that's coming in that those of us who are slow to react may miss. 
So it's really about typing and then matching. And so if I am a certain type, let's hope that I'm the one who takes in a lot of information, slow to respond, quick to recover. If I am not that, can I become it? Or this is like, I'm an introvert, I'll always be an introvert, and I need to learn to make the best of who I am. Yes, this is pretty much set in the womb. Okay. And so this is one of those few things that we say, this is your central nervous system arousal set point. From there, you need to know yourself, know how you interact with and interpret others. And then what you can do are things like, you know, I'm having a quick reaction, but I'm going to go ahead and check myself with one of my neighbors. So you can learn behavioral capabilities, but the likelihood that you're going to lessen your reaction is very slim. So the tie then to emotional intelligence is if I know I'm quick to feel a response, I have to manage my own physiology so that I don't yell at people that I care about. Part of it is, you know, as you get older, you learn to forgive the saying, but almost shut your trap, right? You you basically say, I'm going to count to three before I react, just because I know that what I need to wait for is those chemicals to recede. Because essentially what's happening, right? When you have that reaction, chemicals are firing in your brain. You are shutting down what's called the frontal lobes. Your decision-making capability is reduced. And what you are now in is a state of fight or flight. And you are having an emotional reaction to what in business should be a logical assessment and reaction. So you have to give yourself time. And that may mean I uh, leave the room, I take breaks. We intentionally don't have five hour meetings. We have 45 minute meetings with 15 minute breaks that repeat. You know, there are very clear behavioral things that we can do to set up the work environment to be helpful. But a lot of it is know yourself and where you best fit into these team sections. What you then teach in the program is you talk about how my adrenaline bounces when something happens, someone screams, something drops, I get bad news of some sort. So can you talk a little bit about how you teach people to manage the chemicals in their brain? There's two points here, actually. One of them is managing your own chemicals, but the other is recognizing other people's reactions. It is very common that we take on the stress of others, right? There's something that we say stress is um, contagious. And really what's happening is there's a concept called a mirror neuron. And literally you mirror someone else's neurological reaction. So you are literally feeling the same stress that they are feeling because it's being projected and you are taking it in. Recognizing that is something that immediately can be controlled recognizing that, wow, I've just taken on someone else's emotions or because people have different levels of sensitivity. For me in a room, you know, if I'm at a restaurant, I can hear different conversations and I can feel the emotions that are being put out by all of those people. It makes being in an office space exhausting. <laughs> and so, so sometimes it's very useful to be there to collaborate, but I'm someone who has benefited greatly from the time to be able to work from home. Knowing who on your team fits that description and why can help you to recognize what's happening to them also how it's affecting you because you have the ability to control that reaction much more easily and then be able to help place them. Flip side, how do you help within yourself? So one of the things that we can do, of course, is stack the deck in our favor. That means number one, do you know your tendency? Well, as soon as you know your tendency, then you can start making 
different decisions in how you move your day. You can also change what you eat. Serotonin is one of the chemicals we look at for emotional regulation. 95% of that is produced in the gut. In other words, what you eat matters. So how do we make sure that everyone is aware of which kinds of foods to maximize? This is becoming more popular as we talk about be healthy, be healthy, be healthy, stay on the outside of the the grocery store. But I don't know if everyone realizes how really impactful it is to cognitive health and the ability for the brain to operate properly and to be able to interact with others in a way that allows you to be emotionally strong, right? And then we start talking about, okay, so now how does your reaction and kind of the behavioral recognition of, hey, this is what's happening to me. This isn't my fault. I don't need to be upset with myself or with others. I just need to walk away or sleep on it. That's actually where the term sleep on it comes from. Sleep on it literally means go home and allow the chemicals to drain. And when the chemicals drain the next morning, you will come to work with a clear head. This is why, this is the explanation of why. So when you think about Facebook, for example, let's think you have a a worker that is checking Facebook throughout the day. Guess what's happening? They're getting a flashbang. It's a supercharge to the brain over and over and over and over again. And they're never getting that chance to recede. So this is one of those lessons we learned from military. If you stress and stress and stress and stress a body, you will actually break the brain (laughs) and you end up with people that cannot learn to recover and come back. There's a famous study about a rat. It's kind of how the study goes, although we always question how how much the stories actually fit, but they threw rats into, this is a long time ago when we were allowed to do these things. They threw rats into um, a big barrel of water to determine how long they would swim until they died. One day, one of the students comes in, grabs the rat, puts it on his shoulder, and the, the researcher says, what are you doing? Throw it back in. We're doing a study. So they throw it back in, and that's, that rat outlives all the other rats. Someone said, well, well, why is that? What changed? And what they found was that if you throw a rat in, and you take him out and throw him back, and take him out and throw him back, and take him out and throw him back, in other words, you are stressing, stressing, stressing with no recovery, they will die the most quickly. If you put him in and leave him in, they will die the second most quickly. You take them out, teach them how to recover, how to let the brain chemicals recede, then put them back in, you'll have the longest life. And the reason being that you can actually teach the brain and teach the, in this case, rat, but really humans, right? To be able to come back and recover. This is what resilience is. We think of resilience as being just muscle through. It's not, you'll survive the moment, but you'll lose the war. So how do we teach people to leave the boardroom, let the chemicals recede, come back into the next meeting ready to fire? You'll be able to last much, much longer. You're teaching people to do that not only by go to the board meeting and then go home and sleep, but also (laughs) how do I, especially if it's a morning board meeting, (laughs) what do I eat? Who do I associate with? All of these things that is managing my chemicals. So something I was thinking about this morning as I was preparing for our interview and mindful of what I ate for breakfast, that I ate breakfast, I of course had coffee, but that I ate something that would help my serotonin. I think of as a kid, my reward was ice cream. And when I was feeling bad, ice cream with hot fudge. So I've been trained that the reward is actually unhealthy rather than healthy. So there was no 
you've done a great job, so let's give you something healthy to reward your body yeah. that throws me into a sugar coma, which is then has an adverse impact on me. So can you talk a little bit about that idea? Sure. So what's happening there is you're increasing what's called dopamine. And dopamine, I, I have a lot of rat studies um, <laughs> stories, but the dopamine rat story is hilarious. Um, they, they put an electrode in the rats and then had them hit a lever to get a, a dopamine rush. And they were trying to figure out how long the rats would go before they would go get food. And they all died because they just kept hitting the, the lever. Dopamine is a powerful chemical in the brain. It is a drug that will keep you going. So guess what gives you dopamine? It's food, like chocolate is a big one, right? So does sex, so does reward as a compliment, but so does ice cream and all those wonderful comfort foods, right? They give us that quick zing, but you're right. Following, you're in this food coma. So what's happening, right? Dopamine goes up and then it starts to recede and you start to feel a deficit and you literally can feel it. It will make you tired. It can make you cranky. It makes you feel sedentary. If you run the own, your own study on yourself, you can literally pack it. We have these, these wonderful apple fritters in Georgia that we, we actually plan to go have because when you eat them, they're, they're deep fried and they're covered with ice cream and then with caramel and they're, they're just amazing. They are literally the only thing you will eat that day. So you eat it at 11 o'clock and you sleep for three hours afterward. <laughs> there is no work to be had. And sure, it's, it's a pleasurable moment. You want to go and do those things, but in moderation, because it actually cuts your work productivity. It cuts your ability to, to function in many, many ways. And that's why it's because it's created a rush and then a fall. What's interesting is a lot of folks don't realize that again, we're back to social media. We're back to craving praise or achievement, mm -hmm. right? You'll see a lot of folks who have to be achievement oriented. Why? Because they get a rush when they get the award. That's what's really happening. This is why we say, if we can teach you to be intrinsically motivated, then we don't need to give you an external reward. This is why when people say, I'm concerned we give everyone a participation ribbon, that it's going to have long lasting effects. In fact, it will. This is why when someone plays on a video game as a young person, we worry that they're going to have to continuously have rewards later in life. It's not just about watching violence in a computer game. It's about the reduction of the chemicals that are associated. In fact, video games have almost the exact amount of chemical rush that sex does. So think about all our children that went home and started playing video games out of, frankly, necessity because parents had to work. Think about the long-term effects of some of that. Think about your young people that are coming into the workforce who seemingly need constant re affirmation and need to have kudos and need to have one-ups and plus-ups and snaps. I've seen it all. This is where it all comes from. It's rooted in those early behaviors and how the brain is being set up, how the brain needs to be constantly fed, and then explains why in the workforce you're seeing these unusual cultural shifts by age. Let's go back for just a second to what we feed ourselves and then go to what we feed ourselves in video games. <laughs> so you talked about serotonin and the gut as one factor that drives our brain. Right. What do we eat that's healthy that releases serotonin? 
best way to do this is actually just to Google the serotonin foods because there's like a top 12. But the punchline is it's going to be your bananas, your avocados, your eggs, your nuts. It's all the standard things, your leafy greens, all those things that have strong nutrients in them that a portion of that is uh, supporting serotonin development and production. Great. Thank you. So blueberries, things we aren't surprised about that if we're attending to a healthy diet. Actually, part of the way that I shop is I have a list of those and I just buy them. And so they're always in the fridge. And then that becomes our our snacks for the most part. And I'm pleased to say that dark chocolate is on the list. (laughs) What most people don't realize is I believe it needs to be 90% dark. So it's pretty, it's, it's almost difficult to find at the grocery store, but it is a great treat. Although I will admit to also being addicted to ice cream. I still love ice cream. (laughs) We just throw some dark chocolate on top of it. But yeah, I think it's, you know, it makes it super simple now that we can order on our phones the food to be delivered. We're less likely to get as derailed by all the little snacks and whatnot. So all my kids, you know, it's just the blueberries are on on tap. The raspberries are there. The bananas are easy to grab. All those things that we don't have to cook, we can just make sure that they're part of our diet. And for me, it's smoothies. So berry, spinach, healthy protein, plain Greek yogurt. doesn't sound very exciting, (laughs) but I'm actually able to function in the afternoon. So that's useful. I think it's great. I just, the step of having to put it into the the blender and blend it and then wash it is beyond me. (laughs) I'm too lazy. (laughs) It's that the spinach isn't as tasty as the berries. That is true. That is true. We talked about food and serotonin. Then you talked about dopamine and video games and sex and chocolate and ice cream. How do we, if we're running an organization or or a family, how do we help our, I want to say young people, but as adults or more senior adults, we're not immune to appreciating the likes and the positive reinforcement. How do we build a healthy workplace that does that without completely gamifying or taking video breaks rather than going out and walking? Yeah, it's a great question. I like the point of how do we how do we not completely gamify the office space? Although there are certainly organizations that A, are and, and B, it fits for the type of individual that they're attracting to work in their space. So I think it's not off the table of consideration. I think the first place we have to start is with people understanding why are there differences? Because I think too often what we do, and, and I'll, I'll borrow some wonderful phrases from psychology, we say, don't should all over yourself <laughs> and don't masturbate. And, and really what we're saying is, Don't just look at people and say, this is the way it's been and this is the way it has to be. Understanding why these differences have have developed over the change in age groups is really meaningful to helping stratify the, the interventions that you provide. And I think it reduces frustration. I think definitely when we believe people are just being difficult, it's much more frustrating than we say, wow, I didn't think about the fact that they literally grew up in a different environment. Their brain is actually operating and taking in information differently than mine is. So it stands to reason that they're also going to request and need different types of interventions than would be useful for me. So I think very first, we've got to have a stratification of understanding across the age groups and across the personality types. And then what you have to look at is, 
what is your organization's plan and focus? Do we need to support creativity? Are we focused on product production? Are we focused on uh, managerial understanding? Are we trying to figure out what is the hybrid working environment that we need to have as a ratio? How much do you need to be in the office? How often do you need to be at home? And who needs to fit into that? Not just because we've had a pandemic, but because now we actually see, goodness, there are some people that work way better at home than in the office. Maybe maybe we ought to let them do that. Why do we need them here? And then there are others that we can see have gone off in eight directions and they're not being productive at all. But we can anticipate that, right? We don't just have to guess and we don't just have to react. We actually can create a structure that helps decide that for people and give them the freedom to be in those positions. Then the third thing is, you know, it's like anything else. What's easy is what we're all going to do the most often. So if you're gonna have snacks at the office, granted, people are gonna bring in whatever they want. But if the banana is easy to grab and I'm tired and I'm hungry in the middle of a meeting, I'm probably gonna grab the banana just because it's the easiest and, and closest located to me. Make it simple. So if you know which foods are going to support uh, the individuals in your office, do it. This is, this is a great investment and quite frankly, very low cost. And again, can be done off an app. So this is an easy intervention. Rather than putting out a bunch of granola bars, which are gonna be high in sugar and um, just as easy to, to grab and snag as the banana, put out options that make more sense. Because even if you, you affect everyone 30% of the time, you're definitely having a positive effect. And then the third or the fourth, I think I'm on the fourth, is really looking at how do we do some education? And this is where the Accelerate program really comes in, right? It's first, let's help our leaders understand all of these elements. Then let's help those who are doing the managerial elements. In other words, the planning, the organizing, the permissions, et cetera. Let's help empower them to understand what's going on. And then let's help everyone in the working space to be able to optimize what they're able to do at the personal level. Know yourself, know your coworkers, know the environment that works for you, understand your trajectory for work, what is going to match you best. Even if it's, I've got the best brain chemistry and everything is honky-dory all the time and I have a lot of energy, we still want to make sure that what you're doing to upskill is being uh, taken in and utilized in the best way possible. So even in that scenario, we want to make sure that our cognitive functioning is optimized. Just thinking as I listened through your recommendations, I heard healthy snacks. I'm also thinking one of the organizations that I worked with, we implemented basically a praise program so that people got that hit of thank you for doing a good job. Just systematizing the stuff we learned early in life that you say thank you when someone does something helpful. And in some cases, there are physical things, stars, coins, things. They're tracked on a computer system. So for people who want to compare their leaderboard, they can do that. And then the other sounds like the things that many folks make fun of, the foosball tables, the physical things that, that people at my age would call distractions. But young folks are accustomed to a way to recalibrate their brain, get up and move. I go out and walk. For people who are in environments where they're not going to walk, they can go over to the foosball table for 10 minutes or whatever and just physically move bodies, get chemicals moving around and do the connecting 
which I'm going to say is oxytocin, right? That's correct. So yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot there, right? On the first hand where you were talking about almost a gamified space, one of the things I'm very particular about is that although, yes, we want to make sure that we're providing those tokens, it could be verbal tokens, it could be physical tokens, it could be financial tokens. What is going to be very important as we go forward, and I say this very seriously, we are going to have a major depression and anxiety problem if, if we don't already have it in dire levels. It is going to be much more substantial as we go forward because this data overload, all this information coming in is not going to lessen, it's going to increase. And by reaction, the body has to protect itself and this is how it does it. What this means for businesses, fewer people showing up and being productive. So we have to take it into account. One of the major issues that is going to be the determinant of how those tokens are applied is whether or not you base them on achievement or experience. So experience might be, here's my book over here. What did I do? I went, I went around the country, all 50 states, to understand what is happening between the government, military, politics, and the American people. And we tackled, we got interviews from people all over the place at every level. I talked to folks at RV sites, at the gas station, and then we were talking to ambassadors and, and generals and, and people at the, at the highest of levels. And that experience is fascinating. What I learned about what's happening in our country right now and the fear that people are feeling and how that is manifesting, depending on your political stance or your educational background or what state you live in, is highly influenced, but at the root, is fear. And so was that an achievement? Was that a life experience? How does it play into things? The point is that if we appreciate the opportunities that we have at work, at home, and we appreciate the opportunities and experiences of our workers, they will bring that energy into the workplace. And when they bring that energy into the workplace, they are ramping up and able to be more creative, more productive, better to be involved, slower to react, all these positive ripple effects. The point at which we count how many hours you're working and we only reward when you turn something in. In other words, we are saying the busier and more stressed you are and the fewer vacations you take, the more tokens you're going to get. We're not ultimately going to get their best work. We will win the moment and lose the war. An experience like this, it takes me six months out of my life. I write a cool book and we do some great work that comes out of it. It's a great experience. It's useful to any business I work with because I understand the ripple effect of all of these decisions. But when we don't look at that and we don't keep track of those things for our workers, we miss out on how all of those experiences come into the workplace. The second one you mentioned was what might be deemed, and it's an interesting choice of words, distracting elements, playing foosball, taking walks or, or taking a break in some capacity. In my head, I hear the brain stress level, you know, all the stress chemicals, cortisol and whatnot are calming down. The person is being able to re-lock into a focused task, but it is not increasing workload in the brain by playing foosball. They are, you're correct, getting oxytocin because they are socializing with other people in the office and building trust and safety and of course developing stupid stories together which again bind us together this is why we see it in fraternities this is why we see it in the military this is a purposeful activity it's not just forced fun it is actually having an effect on the way the brain chemicals interact then we go to those beautiful mirror neurons you're happy i'm feeling happy and back and forth and if everyone's ever heard of pavlov's dog you know we ring the bell 
salivates to eat food. Well, guess what? Same thing. If every time I see you, we play foosball and have a great experience, we go into a high stress situation. Guess what my first reaction is going to be? I'm going to see you. I'm going to feel happy. We're going to have trust and we're going to tackle this from a belief that we work well together. Even though we've never actually worked together, we've only played foosball together. We are conditioned to believe that we are connected and that we are going to work well. Last then, of course, it's the energy in the brain. Going for a walk, increases all those energizing chemicals and make you think clearer. Never tell somebody in your office, especially if they have to do a deep thinking job, that they should sit at a desk. Creativity on demand is a predictable failure, period. So find ways to, hey, you know, for me, it's four to 8 a.m. I know that sounds ludicrous. That's when I think best. So as long as a company lets me work in those hours, you're gonna get great work. If you make me do it from three to 7 p.m., it's going to be a production mill and uh, it's not going to be my best work. That's me. Everybody has a time frame. For many, it's midnight to 4 a.m. <laughs> I, I talk to those who are going to sleep and I'm waking up and, and we connect. But I work well with the, on the European side because I'm up early. <laughs> All of this is breaking down again the things that many of our listeners, including myself, grew up with this belief that you good employees, quote good, arrive on time. So they're sitting at their desk ready to work at 8 a.m. And they take a lunch break, but shorter is better because you get more work done. And then <laughs> you stay late because, of course, you're dedicated. And that equation then is not making space for me to physically move my body, potentially not to eat the healthy food, to get the time for my brain to recharge is what I hear is that employee, what we've taught people will actually break the brain. Yes, over time it absolutely will. I once sat in a very high level meeting, sir, do you want lowest cost, technically acceptable military force or do you want the most lethal one? You can't have both. It is the same thing in business. Do you wanna have people that you can check the box, stayed for more hours than is reasonable? and to wear stress and deliverables at like a badge of honor? Or do you wanna have good quality work that results in productivity, enhanced income for your company, and quite frankly, happy people that live? Again, I'm back to exp experience versus achievement. We are going to break families and create a ripple effect of massive stress. If we don't start looking at, it's not just the individual's part to be able to control all of that. We need to create environments where people can thrive. Otherwise, I'm back to my rat story of just throwing people into the water over and over again. One of the things I say to military, because they often will say, you know, we're not going to just turn into a, a soft group. And I said, well, here's my analogy. No one would ask somebody to run a marathon on Friday and train them by running a marathon on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Because the performance of the body would be degraded substantially, if not entirely, because you overworked them for the first four days. It is important that we start measuring by performance and not by hours. Why does anyone care how many hours a child spends in algebra class? If they know algebra, test them, get them out of there, and let them start building something amazing. Let them go be the, the engineer they're going to be. Now, for the student who needs longer, why do we fail them when we could have just given them an extra hour and a half instead of an hour a day? We need to adjust because ultimately it matters, do you know algebra or not? Same thing in the workplace. Do you deliver a work product that is sellable and translatable and profitable? Great. 
don't care if it takes you five minutes or it takes you 40 hours or it takes you 80 hours. This is the target. But it's a shift in thinking. It's a shift to competency versus time-based. It's a shift to product versus time-based. And why, why do we keep seeing this time-based piece come up? It is premised on the belief that we are creating a country that produces in an industrial model. That's why I refer to our school system. We put people through a standardized set of lessons, through a standardized amount of time, with the belief that if everybody does this, the average human will be able to graduate from high school. Then we put them into a workspace where they do a standard 40 hours. Then we move them up based on their age and achievement, standard movement. And then we end up now in this kind of weird situation where we find out people who are sometimes older and have more experience and knowledge in a variety of areas are lacking in their knowledge of technology. And so we have young people that are exceeding them saying, but my work product is better, but that person is senior by age. Where does this fall? We're going to see this disrupted substantially. We're seeing it in military rank structures. We're seeing it in government rank structures. And we're certainly seeing it in company rank structures. It is quality over time. And that needs to be a change in entirely the way that we approach it. We've talked in this interview about brain chemicals, breaking brains, how we organize the work, how we think about our cultures. As we're coming into the final segment of the interview, what would you like listeners to take away? And this is about 10 minutes. I just want to kind of tee us up for people are listening, hopefully, and incredibly curious like I am. I've started my worksheets. I'm managing my life a little bit differently. Like I haven't turned everything on its head, but I am now paying attention to things like brain chemicals where I didn't before. I paid attention to other things. It's one more variable to add to the equation. The other stuff I paid attention to, I still have to. What do you want people to be thinking about so that our society functions more effectively so we aren't facing even more depression than we already have? How do we actually get better So the goal isn't just not to break people, but how do we help people get back to more stable footing, more productive, more engaged? The punchline is we need to recognize that from birth, we have to develop whole humans. It's not just about achievement. It is about developing a life. Work is going to be a a portion of that and needs to be meaningful and developmental more than simply production oriented. Now that's not gonna be true in all jobs, but in many jobs, the the case is that we need to think about that. But even for those jobs that are very repetitive and monotonous, understanding brain chemistry so that we avoid boredom and increase productivity is just as important. Making sure those outside experiences are fueling their life is just as important. So it, it matters very little what you choose as a job or what your opportunities are. It will always be the case that cognitive health and development is going to be incredibly important. You cued me up really well here. So this book, Modernizing Learning, this is a free book from the United States government. Um, that you can download either from the U.S. government website, you can purchase it off Amazon, but frankly, as I like to say, you've already paid for it uh, if you're a U.S. citizen because that's what your taxpayers' dollars go to. This is a redesign of the U.S. education system, birth to age 75. And one of the things that is very noteworthy in it is that we say cognitive or knowledge 
lessons should be 25% of your education. Think about that. 100% of your education and what you measure as a young person and then into college and then into workforce development is focused on what information you have in that classroom or that topic area. But what we're suggesting is that your physical health, your emotional health, and your cognitive capabilities, resilience, decision-making, all those higher order skills and leadership, et cetera, are as important to be developed as your informational knowledge. Because quite frankly, we can look up a lot of information, right? There is a finite amount of information a brain can hold if you don't allow it to expand by the use of technology. In other words, you make people memorize it instead of be able to determine where they get the information and how to use it, then you are going to limit the capabilities of the human mind. So number one in my mind is we have to think of people as whole humans, and it doesn't matter which age you're looking at or which type of job or function they're serving in the country. Everyone matters, and they, they need to have the opportunity to develop the second is that we have to change to an experience-focused society. What is the opportunity that you're going to experience? And how do we make sure that we give you credit for that experience? Very meaningful when a leader in a company goes and, and climbs a mountain that took them two years to prepare for. That story gets told and retold and inspires people to say, this is somebody I wanna follow. It's meaningful even though it didn't result in a direct monetary compensation. So how do we help people to be curious and to be inventive and to, to challenge themselves? And then how do we bring all of that into the workspace so that people can deal with what is absolutely expected? This is not a question. This is a known reality. We are going to live in a, in a world that has constant data coming in. We are not going to understand all of the data, right? So you hear folks questioning scientists right now. How can any of us question them? We're not that kind of science. I'm a scientist and I'm even that kind of scientist. So I wouldn't even know the question, but we're all trying to make sense because our lives depend on it right now. But the truth is we're not equipped to answer all of those questions. So there's no doubt that we're gonna have lots of information and we're not gonna understand all of it. That leads to fear. That leads to what I call turtling, where you try to hide and do what is really comfortable to you, but is not necessarily helpful to you. And we need to help people be comfortable in those spaces to move forward. And I think if we can do those three things, we will create a much more enjoyable society that has collective brain chemistry working better. And then, of course, as a society, we would be more productive as well. So this is where... The ugly word said a lot is, is socialism, and that's not at all what we're talking about, but a collectivist, like an idea that your work affects my ability, my abilities enhance someone else's options. Those connections are, are powerful and they multiply our efforts. And that was what I hope for our country, for sure. So rather than socialism, it sounds like interconnected. Interconnected, yes. And gets back to then your mirror neurons that if my feelings are contagious, especially when I'm in a room next to you, right? if I am literally comprised of particles vibrating, not a solid thing, even wood is particles vibrating, I'm standing next to you, your particles vibrating, those particles are going to be intersecting 
And of course, we're going to feel that to a degree. So if I'm in a room of people who've just watched some terrible thing on the news and we're all going to die, I can't go into a meeting without feeling that undercurrent. And if I'm watching the news or looking at Facebook or something all day long, rather than feeding my brain something positive, not to the point where I'm delusional, but to the point where I am able to manage my focus so that I'm continually reinforcing that I do have capacity, I do have agency in a lot of situations, then I'm able to show up and be that expander rather than the diminisher. Yes, exactly. So, you know, at the one extreme, this is essentially what happens in terrorism, right? Terrorism is controlled by fear. And essentially, you have a patient zero, it's like a virus, you have a patient zero that's susceptible to extreme stress, and they start metaphorically anyway, infecting rings until it gets outward, 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 and people gravitate towards that because it's zing in the brain, right? The opposite can also be the case where you can share that positivity and combat. But there is a lot of data that says we gravitate towards the negative far more easily than we do to the positive. It was really interesting because I did, I did this huge study on boredom in industrial workplaces, and we were looking at the happiness quotient, and a lot of happiness is actually biological. So you are a neurologically preset happy human. Everybody in the room was like, wait. Oh man, that's that's almost painful to hear. But so we have to be aware of that at some level, people who see extreme reality are not necessarily happy humans. And that isn't necessarily where we want to live. So I agree we don't want to be delusional, but I think it's okay to choose to be in a space and to focus on those elements that are more positive in your world. And then to, like you said, turn it off. Like literally turn it off. When you're at the gym, you do not need to watch 15 newscasts that are absolutely stressing your body out, like measurably. If we put an EEG on your head, we would be able to say that you just started your day off with an extreme dose of cortisol. Not good, not good at all, right? We, we have to be able to make sure that our workout experience in the morning is positive. Having those TVs on is not going to do that. And then it's the same, right? How do you prep for going into your meeting? Make sure that you are, are in your set point. Think about our Olympians. What mindset do they need to be in and how focused do they need to be on that training to be able to be successful? It is not just about your ability to ski down the mountain. It's your ability to deal with the stress that comes from standing at the top of the mountain and knowing when you get to the end, there's going to be a whole bunch of cameras in your face and people are going to ask you a lot of questions and it's going to be very, very hard. And on those days when no one has a camera in front of your face, you still have to work out. There's all these other elements that allow you to work at the most optimal level. And they are not simply that you have enough information. We used to say uh, book smarts versus, versus street smarts. And really that is, have you memorized or can you apply? I want you to be able to apply it. That's gonna be the most important. And that means we need everything working together. That's a wonderful way to close our conversation that you are teaching people to take what's already in their brains and what's available by technology that I no longer need to have memorized, but that I can go to Google or my favorite search engine to find a lot of what I need. The tie-in for me with developmental psychology and leadership maturity is at the earlier maturity levels, people can repeat back and they're in some cases absolutely brilliant at it. But I don't want a leader who can repeat back because I have an encyclopedia. 
I need a leader who can understand which data to use, how to make meaning of, how to engage people. And that gets back to your, if our teaching is the old memorizing the drill and kill versus application and teaching people how to become more effective with the data they have, we will have better leaders. We have to be metacognitive. Yes, it's it's all back to being metacognitive, right? You've got to be able to read the room, read yourself, read the information. You can only do that if your working memory capacity is at its optimal state. And that requires a lot of good decisions along the way. JJ, it has been a pleasure to get to share this conversation with our listeners. And hopefully when I get to the end of the program, we will do another conversation and, and People will hear the increased metacognitive capability that I have based on my work with you. (laughs) Wonderful. So how would people find you? You can visit us through Management Essentials. So it's mgmtessentials.com. Great. And they would look for you and all of the other brilliant services and assessments. Yes. Yes. Great. Thank you so much. And you're also on LinkedIn. People can find you there. Yes, absolutely. Just look up Dr. JJ Walcott. Your book will be listed in our blog so people can go to the government site or to Amazon and purchase it, but to go to the government site and get it for free because it is also exceptional, especially for anyone who is in the space of teaching and learning. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our listeners and with me and helping people rethink how important it is and that they have access that we have choices now about how we manage and expand our cognitive capability. So to our listeners, thank you for joining us. I hope that you have heard something from JJ that you can put into practice immediately for each of you. And JJ has said this, everyone, every single human is important as an interconnected society. And so each of us needs to learn to build these capacities in ourselves, in our children, in our communities, in our colleagues and co-workers, and they are accessible. So thank you for joining, listening, and being productive members of our community. Thank you so much for having me.